The opinions expressed on this show are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily represent those of Funeral Radio's management or sponsors. Welcome to the Director's Exchange, commentary from leading funeral industry analysts and practitioners. Brought to you by Funeral Radio. And now your host, Raymond Akins. Hello, everyone, and welcome again to the Director's Exchange. I'm your host, moderator, Ray Akins, and this is the place where we bring to our professional community topics of interest pertaining to what is a rapidly evolving field uh, in funeral service today. As always, we want to say that none of this would be possible without the gracious support of the folk at FuneralRadio.com. We do hope you will visit our website if you haven't done so already and make us a part of your regular viewing and listening habit. For today's program, the focus is going to be on the hospice industry. To begin with, hospice in the United States is an industry that's aimed at transforming the experience of dying. We say something similar all the time about funeral service, that is, in terms of our need to transform modern funeral service along the line such that we facilitate rites and tributes that become more meaningful to the families we serve. So some of the things I think are important, some of the things that we would all benefit from knowing concerns uh, such matters as how many Americans uh, does hospice currently serve at the end of life, What are the current trends and practices? How do hospice providers identify funeral operations to recommend in the case where a funeral is needed and there is no pre-existing relationship with the funeral provider? And lastly, uh, I should say but not least, are there any ethical guidelines in the case of uh, an individual out there or a funeral establishment that wants to become more involved in the hospice uh, outreach. These are some of the areas that we plan to cover in today's broadcast. So to begin, let me briefly share with you some numbers. And by the way, I want to tell you that there's so much data at our disposal that it's going to be necessary to disperse tidbits throughout the course of the interview with our special guest. So before she comes on, let me begin with a brief overview of the present situation and circumstances as they apply to hospice. If you read any recent article about hospice, what you can expect to see is something in the form of a quote that says, in effect, that the American hospice industry is booming. And booming is indeed what's actually happening. And while the funeral uh, market is currently estimated to be around $20 billion annually, end-of-life care is estimated to be in the range of $17 billion. That's a $17 billion industry. This is a fact that those of us in the funeral profession may not actually be aware of. We can attribute all this expansion to the phenomena of aging in America, where every month today, more than a quarter million Americans are turning age 65. We're living longer, too, but it will be a while yet before boomers start turning 85. But when they do, more of them will get there than at any time in any previous generation. Hospice care, in its broadest sense, includes uh, components that uh, involve care of the patient and family prior to the time of death, care at the time of death for the patient, 
And there's an aftercare component, which is a form of extended care for families during their so-called period of bereavement. In the most recent study, uh, most recent period for which st- statistics are available, nearly 42% of all deaths in America happen under the care of a hospice provider. Nearly 25% of those deaths occur in nursing homes, implying, of course, that the greater majority of deaths occur in the home or household. More than 46% of the Medicare patients who died in 2012, that's the latest uh, uh, date for which we have numbers, they receive some form of hospice care. And between 2000 and 2012, the number of Medicare patients receiving such services more than doubled to what is now in the area of uh, about 1.2 million. Now, this growth stems in part from evolving preferences on the part of Americans, most of whom are now saying that they would prefer to die at home rather than at a hospital. These numbers, keep in mind, are expected to rise significantly as the population moves further along the age curve. Our special guest today is Ms. Loretta Downs. She is an internationally recognized inspirational speaker writer and consultant on the subject of preparing for and supporting the end-of-life experience. Now, that, of course, entails preparation and comfort and the means by which we skillfully provide for those at the end of life, meaning that the process uh, by which people can transition with a sense of dignity and love. Please join me in welcoming onto the program Ms. Loretta Downs. Hello, Loretta. Hi, Ray. Thank you very much for the invitation to be here with you today. Well, I can't tell you how happy I am to have you on board. Thanks so much for agreeing to be here. So the feeling is mutual. Uh, Let me say, after I just went over those uh, statistics, and I tried to be as brief as possible, is there anything in addition to the foregoing that you think we need to mention at the outset uh, I, I know in a previous conversation, for example, you mentioned that not only is America aging, but that uh, we're living longer by virtue of medical advances. But I know you also say we're living longer. It doesn't mean that we're living without pain and discomfort. And many of our seniors have uh, complicated health issues, and extending life presents us with the inevitable realization that we're just going to die. This is very true. What's happened over time, particularly since um, on the 70s when a a great deal of money was sent into uh, reducing the the number of deaths, people that were dying from cardiac issues, and we now have a huge arsenal of medications that are keeping people alive who don't have healthy hearts. And there's so many other diseases now that people are living with that are that are chronic diseases. So, so a healthy person who lives into old age very often is living with a lot of different chronic conditions for which they're taking medications. I mean, the average 65-year-old takes five prescription drugs. So, um, you know, we are living longer, but not. All of us are living well into old age, and, and a lot of people, <clears throat> excuse me, over 85, don't have a real high quality of life. Um, and I, I think we all have experienced that. But the and then late in life, there are a lot of what what medical professionals call comorbidities, where people have a lot of diseases that would add up to 
uh, life-limiting diseases, a person who's diabetic and has Parkinson's or a person who has heart disease and diabetes. Um, so there are multiple reasons, conditions that would cause someone's death eventually. And, you know, we live in a death-denying society. I hear your your uh, community understands that very well. One of the reasons that we like makeup on our bodies at death is absolutely, so that we absolutely. still look alive. Yes. Yeah. Um, a couple things I'd like to address about what you said about hospice. There has been an increase in hospice use, and that happened, it started really in 2000 when Bill Moyers did a, a television series called On Our Own Terms. And that was heavily funded by a number of organizations and became a national head start for the hospice movement. And it it happened, that whole transition in our social, cultural lives where hospice became a part of life treatment at end of life was because the experiences of people dying had been so often traumatic and uncomfortable and painful and lonely and we saw the need for hospice care okay and and another so so and and when that happened the the awareness in america increased Factorially, okay. It was on all the PBS stations. Uh, a lot of organizations, like the Chicago End of Life Care Coalition, were started at that time. Mm-hmm. So, as awareness increased and people experienced more and more hospice care from other people, we learned more. Yeah. And yes, there is an increase of use of hospice. But in 2013, the last statistics that the National Hospice and Palliative Care Organization published. Thirty-five and a half percent of all hospice patients received care for less than a week. A week. A week. Seven days or less. Almost thirty-six percent. And I know hospice patients that die the day they're admitted, or a day or two later. So there's this large number of people who, while they do officially die in hospice care, they and their families don't have a lot of time to prepare. And another 27% were in hospice for less than 30 days. So it's 60, almost 65% of all hospice patients receive that benefit for less than a month. Well, you know, that's an interesting statistic because it seems to go against what is the mission of hospice, and that is to provide comfort uh, at the end of life and allow the family to uh, join the patient in the final journey. But what kind of a journey can you have when, you've, you, when you come in the same day or you're basically there for two weeks and you expire? That's a rhetorical question. You don't have a very good journey. It's true. You can't get all the support for your spiritual, emotional, psychological needs in that kind of time. And, in very, and at the end of life, people are sick. Um, the last week of life is often one where people aren't even uh, actively involved, awake. There's a lot of, of quiet that goes on in that last week of life, certainly the final days. And this impacts, I think, the funeral industry because when a person who very often has been sick for a long time and either the doctors are not recognizing the signs of dying or they don't want to. You know, a lot of doctors aren't even trained to talk about dying. Or the family doesn't want to. They're continuously, you know, what more can we do? We don't want mom to die. What more can you do? So this ongoing process of keeping, of, of keeping someone alive longer 
versus creating more comfort and reducing their suffering and making death a peaceful, comfortable death a goal. Is there an education component that uh, families who find themselves in that situation are without uh, uh, any prior awareness, or is there a need that a greater need that the population become educated about hospice? Oh, we need to be educated about dying, Ray. You now, until pretty much World War One, everybody died at home, mm-hmm. and families understood what dying was like. They understood how to care for someone who was dying. It, it was a shorter process. And very often someone would say, you know, I'm going to go, I'm taking to my bed. And, and they would announce the fact that they knew they were dying. They would go to bed and stop eating, and the family would support them. The, the, the women in the neighborhood would come and help care for the family and the person who was dying. Doctors made house visits. And, and that changed pretty much after World War II when our caregiving force went to work. You know, women went to work. Sure. And, and people started moving around away from their families of origin to different places around the country, and and that changed the, the caregiving system. So we really, we death isn't witnessed very often by us, so we don't know what to do. And uh, not eating, for, this is a good example, people don't eat at the end of life. You just don't eat. That's part of the dying process. And when people were dying at home, Families would feed a person and, and give them water or beverages until they didn't want any more. And, and you felt like you'd done everything. Mm-hmm. Now what's happening when somebody doesn't stop eating, and this happens particularly with people with dementia, people living in nursing homes, when they stop eating, we put in feeding tubes. And, and that makes it much hard. You know, it, it doesn't really, um, it certainly doesn't make the dying process easier but it makes it harder to predict. Okay. Someone's being artificially fed. You know, uh, I'm sorry, let me interrupt here because one thing, and I think this is unfair, I did not go over your background and share it with our listening audience. We have your official biography uh, posted to our website, but uh, I'd like to do maybe a quick Reader's Digest uh, version and just share with the, uh, those who are listening and haven't been to our website yet, uh, what is the nature of your background and experience, if you don't mind. Uh, Loretta has been described as an extraordinary storyteller who permeates her lively presentations with love, compassion, hope, and wisdom. And that's what we're going to try and tap into today. Her experience with end-of-life issues comes after 25 years of being a companion to AIDS patients, friends, and family, all the way through to the end-of-life experience. She was drawn in 1999 to study death and dying, and that followed, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Loretta, that was a career you had in retail, is that right? No, I was in wholesale. I worked in the merchandise mart for 30 years. Ah, I see. Okay, a wholesaler. And I retired in 1999. And and that's a perfect segue to my next point. It's so typical of baby boomers, is it not? Uh, upon completion of one journey, a career journey, uh, there's that pull or call to take on another skill. And that's the word I use. You, I guess you receive some kind of a calling. And uh, let me just list some of the accomplishments that uh, that went along with your career change. Uh, that was in 1999, is that correct? Correct. Okay. 
Why you, <laughs> you earned a master's degree in gerontology in 2009. You are the past president of the Chicago End of Life Care Coalition. Co- coalition. You are a Meta Institute certified end of life care practitioner and a graduate of the Being with the Dying training. You are a certified Respecting Choices advanced care planning facilitator and a certified senior advisor. Doesn't stop there, folks. Uh, Loretta is also a member of the Advocate Illinois Masonic Medical Center Ethics Committee the Association of Death Education and Counseling, the American Society on Aging, and the Pioneer Network, uh, which promotes cultural change in long-term care models. Uh, You founded the uh, Chrysalis End-of-Life Inspirations. Is that correct? That's correct. In fact, I have a website where people can go and get more information or contact me with questions. Okay. And that is a project that advocates for private rooms in nursing homes and hospitals so that families can keep vigil with the loved one who is in the process of dying. Uh, I see here reflections on the history of keeping a vigil were included. Oh, that was a segment on that... uh, uh, famous documentary, uh, Consider the Conversation, in which you are, uh, which you do appear in a segment. And that's the film that's been shown to hospitals, universities, uh, uh, and homes on the PBS network around the country. And your work serves to inspire others to talk about their end of life decisions. And you also blog on the Life Media. Life Matters Media website, and we will supply a link on our uh, website to uh, that matter, uh, that link for people who want to follow you. So, uh, we're talking about the funeral industry at the same time we're talking about hospice, uh, Loretta. And in your opinion, I'd like to start out asking you uh, is there a message you think that needs to be conveyed to the funeral industry? Something maybe along the lines, uh, especially uh, for advice for their, for those firms who'd like to perhaps establish a hospice outreach. Now, there are only two professions in this country, I think the world, that deal with death. And one is hospice and the other is the funeral profession. And most of us, most, most people who are not in that profession, and, and even some who are, uh, are not being given opportunities or encouragement to, to prepare for dying. And I think the funeral directors see that all the time because of the, the resistance to pre-planning for various reasons. Mm-hmm. And, and the short-term in hospice, that also confirms what I said. So I, I see the, that, that there, the potential tremendous potential for a collaboration between hospice and funeral directors exists that's not being taken advantage of for the most part. And when people, when a person gets admitted to hospice care, it's a crisis. They have been sick usually a long time. If they've been sick for a long time, there's this, oh my gosh, this is really the end experience. And if they haven't, it's really traumatic. Oh my gosh, this person has gone from being really well to some crisis that they are now told, we, the doctors, you know, there's no more medical treatment. We need to admit you to hospice. 
So there's all this crisis management going on. And then this person dies, and they're sent to the funeral director, and the family is managing another crisis. So if, if the, there's a collaboration between the, the, the pre-death and the post-death communities, we could make the experience of dying for families so much less traumatic. It's never going to be easy. Mm-hmm. And, and everyone who's listening to the show has lost someone they love. Of course. And, you know, I, in fact, we all have heard this. Oh, he's been, he died suddenly after a long illness. Mm-hmm. Well, and go ahead. If, if we could, as a, a, a professional community and a society, reduce the number of, of families that experience that kind of suffering, it would be really wonderful for society. You know, it, it's interesting that you bring this up because uh, the, the National Funeral Directors Association, the uh, first time I recall them uh, discussing hospice was really not too long after the Bill Moyers initiative, and that was in uh, 2005. And there was a discussion at that time that uh, there was a need for the funeral directors and hospice to f- establish some kind of a collaborative uh, effort. I've not heard much about it since then until this year. And uh, in case you aren't aware, a new joint effort has been established between the National Hospice and Palliative Care Organization and the uh, National Funeral Directors Association. And their plan is to focus on bringing hospice professionals and funeral directors to work collaborative collaboratively on helping families uh, through this process. There is an education seminar scheduled for September of this year, and members can uh, go online and participate in the webinar. And uh, I should say there are other activities which uh, hospice and the NFDA plan to do in terms of stepping up their efforts uh, in the year 2014. So it's, it's starting to step up, and I guess it couldn't have come at a better time. But now, if there is a basis for funeral directors and hospice organizations to establish a form of collaboration what are the ethics involved in that? Because I don't think we want to encourage funeral directors to go on out and, and dive into this industry because you, you're going to come into contact with people who are dying, you know, uh, fairly rapidly. Is there not uh, uh, an ethical component, do you think, that uh, ought to be taken into consideration? In other words, is there advice for if a funeral home wants to legitimately orchestrate an outreach, what are the things they have to consider? What's, what is going to actually be involved, in your opinion? Well, I think it's important to understand it would be unethical for a hospice to make a fiduciary arrangement with a funeral director. That can't be involved at all. Mm-hmm. The, the relationship between a hospice provider and a funeral director needs to be one of co-education so that the, the funeral directors understand hospice, that the hospice is doing education to the funeral directors, and that the funeral directors are doing the same kind of education to the hospice. So, so we, because we lack this training right now. You know, I, I've had two parents 
my mother and father have both died, and those two experiences are my personal funeral director experiences. Uh, that's the case for most people. So we aren't educated. And if we've had a bad experience once or twice, that colors all future experience. And funeral and, and hospice workers are limited to their funeral information by their own personal experiences and that of their hospice patients. So I think the, the, the key to this is co-education for the first steps. And the second step is customer service. The, if, if a funeral provider is not serving the family, the hospice patients, the hospice workers see that. If someone's around, they hear it. There's follow-up surveys sent to the families. How was your hospice service? And it includes after-death care. So the families report to the hospices how the, how the, the, the funeral removal service was, how easy it was to make the phone call and get someone in the house quickly and who acted compassionately and politely and, and with dignity. That's all. That information is all fed back to the hospice provider. You, you know, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because that reminds me of a conversation we had some time ago where you were at the bedside of someone who expired, and when the funeral home was called, uh, you this was at I believe at a nursing home. Can you tell that story again? The uh, a dirty removal van showed up. The guy. Uh, uh, was intimidated by the people who wanted to walk uh, the deceased from the uh, the place of death uh, to the vehicle, and I guess resisted. Um, Correct. And- this, the woman who died was a was a beloved resident at this nursing home. She'd been there many years, and she was just loved by the staff and other residents. And I was there when she died, and the the removal gentleman came. And he had on uh, casual clothes, actually a, a, a golf shirt and, and khakis, and came in and he had a body bag, wrapped her up, put her on the cart, and was about to take her down the hall. And I said, don't you have a cover? And I ripped the bedspread off to cover her up so she, so she looked uh, you know, more attractive and, and not so frightening. That black bag running through a nursing home hall is very terrifying. And... And a group of us wanted to walk her out. There were about 15 people, some of her family, some of the staff, me. And he was running ahead of us toward the ambulance exit, which is in the front of the building, but not the main entrance. And I couldn't figure out why he was going so quickly until we got out in the front. And he had come to pick up this woman we love dearly in the daytime in a rusty panel van. And when he opened the back there was a filthy carpet in the back and it was depressing. It was frightening. It was, um, you know, it, it, it just, we're also afraid to die anyhow. And then, then we have an experience of seeing this, this undignified treatment and, and become more afraid to die. Okay. So then, uh, one component of the outreach or the servicing to the hospice industry that, Funeral directors will have to be uh, uh, acutely aware of, and that is how the uh, transfer from the facility where death occurred to the funeral home, how that whole process uh, should be done 
that affords the family a sense of dignity. It really starts right there. Absolutely. A little ritual would be a wonderful thing to leave a family with. You know, they've gone to so much trouble to make an effort to have a loved one die at home or to be with that loved one who dies in a nursing home so they can be present. That's what families want so much to be with. with that, and surveys of families, the first thing they say is it's important to be present with that loved one. Uh, and, and on all surveys, the three things that people are most afraid of about dying is pain, being out of control, and being alone. Maybe not necessarily at the moment of death. A lot of people die when their families have left the room. Yes. But in the dying process, we don't want to be alone. We don't know what happens. We don't know what it feels like. You want someone there holding your hand. So when after death, the family is, you know, they're, they're, they're confused. They're experiencing feelings they've never had before. They're sitting with a dead body. Most of them haven't ever seen a dead body. And then a stranger comes in with a cart bags the body, and sometimes doesn't even know how to talk to the family. And that just makes the experience so much harder. Tell me. And, and, uh, okay, go ahead. Did you want to finish your statement? Yeah. Um, one of the things hospice heavily, highly encourages families to do is pre-plan the funeral because they know a death is imminent. Okay. And, and well, there. This is a key for the relationship between funeral directors and hospitals. So let so let me ask you this question. Let me interject for a second. This uh, incident you just described. How was the funeral home selected? Was that a funeral home that has serviced a family in the past? Yes. Aha. Uh-huh. Okay. But they hadn't had an experience with removal, and I called the funeral director. I was very upset about this. Um, and he said that this was a new service, and he kind of defended himself by, and I don't know if that was even true, and that he would talk to the man and would be sure that wouldn't happen again. Uh, there really wasn't any way for me to follow up on it, but, mm-hmm. uh, but I certainly would not recommend that funeral director to anybody. Oh. And then, you know, the family isn't, they're, they're, they're upset. It's not the time to say, oh, my God, the funeral director came, the, the, the transfer service came with this horrible van I wouldn't put my dog in. That would have been inappropriate. Okay. So is there a, a list uh, in a typical hospice of uh, pro- funeral providers who the, they have, uh, let's say, approved in terms of the services that are offered? In, I've spoken to some of my friend hospice providers, and what they experience is that most often a family has had an experience with a funeral director in the community, and they are very likely to go with that. Also, if a hospice has had a positive experience with a funeral director in the community, they will say that. They don't do direct recommendations unless they've had experiences with them. And many hospices cover a large geography. Mm-hmm. You know, they, don't, they don't work in, a, in one community, for instance. And, and right now in the, in the Chicago land, Chicago and suburban area, there are about 50 hospices operating. And there are over 5,000 in the whole country. Yes. 
So if the role of the hospice staff, and I know it's an interdisciplinary team that's involved in supporting the family, uh, it, is there, because of the brief time the person enters into hospice and uh, the onset of death, there is no time to have a conversation uh, with the family regarding uh, uh, the funeral service? Does well, that is, in- is that a time when that should uh, when it's appropriate to bring up versus not? Uh, it is. It is uh, um, planning the funeral. Pre-planning the funeral is brought up at the initial intake. I see. So this would be a good time. We we suggest that you plan the funeral so at death you can put your energy into calling the people you need to call, preparing for the service, taking care of yourself. You know, after a death, people are exhausted that have been taking care of a loved one. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and the hospice knows this, and 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 it's a wonderful uh, way to support the family by encouraging them to pre-plan the funeral before things get very intense, caring for a loved one. Sure. Now, the let's also clear up another matter. Uh, hospice providers are not a monolithic or uniform in terms of how they're organized. Uh, there's uh, for-profit and, and uh, not-for-profit. Uh, can you maybe explain some of the variations we see out there? And I say that because let's say that if I'm a funeral home and I've decided I want to conduct a, a hospice outreach, I want to uh, establish some kind of a collaborative experience, uh, mm-hmm. I, I might make a mistake, uh, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, by by just selecting a hospice random, randomly, and if it's a for-profit the experience is likely to be vastly different from a nonprofit. Would that be correct? I don't want to use the word vastly. Hospices are very regulated because they get paid by Medicare, so they have a lot of regulations they have to follow, and all of them have to follow these. How they provide services and how extensively they provide services will vary. And just like funeral directors, funeral homes, Hospices have their own personalities, and sometimes the not-for-profits will provide services uh, that the for-profits don't, or they might provide more of them. For instance, alternative therapies like massage and art therapy and um, music therapy are very often offered to some degree in in not-for-profit hospices, and less so in for-profit hospices because for-profit hospices have to make money for investors. Yeah, <laughs> that's what they and that's the what they say all the time about funeral service too: the corporations versus the independently owned. Right. Well, it's the structure of the organization, mm-hmm. and uh, and not-for-profit hospices tend to have the, the nurses, the staff tends to have a, a, a little smaller uh, patient load than the for-profit hospices. And, you know, I mean, it's just logic to think that if you have to make money for investors, that you it, it affects the service you provide. And some of the for-profits are very large. Therefore, they get less, they, they have better buying opportunities for supplies. Okay. 
so then they can offer different services. It's um, it's all around, but again, there are personalities uh, of the organizations and the kind of service that they provide in their relationships with their patients and families. Okay, well, let, let me ask you this then. In your experience, uh, have you ever observed a situation where the hospice and the funeral home uh, might be characterized as having too cozy and convenient a relationship? Not in my experience. Okay. There are always rumors going around that, that that a hospice and a funeral provider may have a relationship. But again, the hospices work in very large geographic territories, and funeral providers generally work in a small community. Okay. There was uh, one recommendation from a uh, funeral professional. Uh, um, yeah, I believe it was. And they suggested that if you're serious about this, uh, meaning a funeral establishment, and they want to establish a hospice outreach, actually, it makes perfect sense, if you ask me, given the huge numbers of people who are, are, are cho- uh, choosing this avenue for their end-of-life experience. That if you're going to initiate something like that, you select one professional at the funeral home to oversee that. Does that make sense to you? Um, well, it gives it it pro- creates a specialist, which is I think you know there's some some that can be very effective because there's a lot to know. Mm-hmm. It's not this is not a simple thing that you can take one one an hour class and know all about hospice care and, and what can be done. And uh, I think having someone who gets to who who is provided extra time to learn more about this kind of care. How can it not be good? Okay. Uh, you know, I think we talked about this in the past. There have been uh, charges uh, um, hurled at the uh, hospice providers uh, by funeral directors. And as a result, there's years ago, there was a, a real argument uh, that was taken public where the funeral professional was uh, claiming that hospices interfere with the ability of the funeral home to facilitate uh, uh, not necessarily a full service, but just let me say a service that uh, more uh, is highly likely to have a true healing experience for the family. The assertion was made that hospices generally recommend uh, cremation or direct cremation um, and look for the cheapest, not the most experienced or the most skilled funeral provider. Do you have any experience to uh, respond to that one way or the other? No, I've not heard of that, and it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Hospice workers given the time. If somebody's in hospice for a couple of days, it's not really easy to do, but they develop very intimate relationships with the patients and the families. We're with people, I've been a hospice volunteer for almost 30 years. We're with people at the most needy time of their lives. And whether it's someone who's dying and 
you only die once, depending unless you're a Buddhist or, <laughs> or a Hindu, um, and you've never done it before. This is this is crisis. You're trying to make meaning out of your whole life. You're trying to uh, manage pain. You're trying to say goodbye to everything you know, including your own body. This is a very challenging time in life, and you have family watching. You know, you're not eating, and your family wants to feed you, or you're in pain, and they can't stop your pain. This is a horrible time of life, and the hospice people bring a degree of peace and comfort by just being there. Okay. So this is an intimate relationship, and they get to know their families, and they get they live with these people, sort of, and they get to understand, you know, who can afford what. So with, in the case, but I don't, I don't believe, I, it, of course, you know, human nature. I don't believe that a hospice would say, don't have a funeral. I think it's the, hospice is is very person centered. Uh, they're more likely to say, what's important to you. How do you want to celebrate the life of your loved one? I could see, for example, in the case, uh, the situation you described, obviously close bonds are uh, developed with the family, and there might be the desire to, uh, if, if they are aware of a financial situation, that the selection of a funeral provider not constitute a burden. Right. And on that basis, they might look for the least uh, expensive funeral provider. Now, that's just going to be a fact uh, out there. Do yeah. do uh, any do hospice staff or uh, anyone on the interdisciplinary team do they actually go into the establishment to make funeral arrangements with the family? I doubt it. Okay. That is not part of the service that hospice provides. Okay. There, you, there may be some, you know, wild exception to this with a person who gets very involved with the family, but I find it, it not likely. Okay. <clears throat> so then, you're... You know, this is home care, nursing home care. This is not that kind of... Uh, service provided. All right, so let, let, let's get down to brass tacks. You're a funeral home owner. How would you meet the hospice challenge in your business? Um, I want to go back to one thing about cremation. What's the national percentage of people who are getting cremated now? Well, here in the Midwest is 40%. On the East and West Coast is upwards of 75, 80% or more. I think the South is the last bastion where the numbers are fairly in the low range. I say less than 25 or 30%. But uh, in Chicago, it moved in the, uh, or the Midwest. Chicago and Detroit, I've had conversations with directors and all are easily at the uh, 40% average rate now. Okay. Um, that's a societal change. That is not the influence of hospice increasing. It's the cost of burials. It's the cost of funeral service and wakes. And people are, we all know this, people don't want to have the traditional kind of sit around wake and um, service anymore. We were... So that's Go ahead. That's as much a reaction to the the funeral system as it is a societal change of people being more mobile and wanting to just have less of a of a. They don't want the body present at their own memorial service. Say that again. They don't. 
that more people don't want oh. their bodies present at their own memorial services. Okay, okay, and this... That, that's like a, a change in trend. A remarkable uh, change in trend, because you've got some stalwarts, and I don't mean to put that in a negative light, who insist that you cannot have a meaningful uh, funeral service if the body is not present. And that doesn't go with your experience, does it? No, no. I started, I first got involved in dying during the AIDS epidemic in the 80s and 90s because I worked in the Martin. There were a lot of young, creative men who worked there also that became close to me. In fact, I had friends all over the country. And I went to an awful lot of fabulous memorial services where there was nobody present. Can you describe what the facilities were like? Because we've also talked about that before, too, because the industry seems to have the perception that it's a dark place, uh, it's a gloomy place, and these services that you find most memorable, are they, uh, is it light and glass and flowers and greenery and, you know, uh, yeah, and food, video, food and drink, and food, food and, and drink. drinks, and video facilities where people can show slideshows of pictures. Uh, I went to a wonderful service for a man who had died of ALS at sixty-eight, and they showed a video on a large screen. It was at a conference center, and they serve there was they serve food in a, you know a dining area, and there was this huge. Uh, conference room that had lots of windows that they'd turned into, that they'd brought his body there and turned it into the funeral area. And they showed a video of him skydiving, which was one of the things on his bucket list when he got diagnosed. It was very exciting, actually, and um, made the whole thing so much more peaceful. Okay, then. So uh, I, I'm going to add to, I'm going to modify the uh, original question again. Uh, describe for me uh, the type of facility that would most suit the growing, uh, just say the changing preferences and whether it be full service or memorial, how would that facility look? And again, how would you design your hospice outreach? Do you have a step-by-step plan? Well, let me answer the house. I, I know it's right first. off the top of the. Uh, uh, yeah. yeah. No, I, I'm actually some things are popping into my head. The hospice outreach. I would make a phone call to the director of the hospice and ask how, uh, and say that you would how I can help you do your work better, and be willing to provide a prepared educational in service for the staff at the hospice and maybe follow-up. One of the things hospice provides that you mentioned is bereavement service, and they provide it for 13 months after a death because that first year is so hard for loved ones going through every anniversary, a birth, uh, anniversaries, the holidays, you know, that first year with, with the empty chair. And, and for funeral homes, to collaborate in a bereavement outreach would be so excellent. Because then you're dealing with the live people, and those are that's customer service. Okay. Uh, and hospices, they have they have bereavement departments, but they can't reach out. They can't do 
as much as they would like to do. They don't have enough staff uh, to do as much bereavement outreach as, as they would like to do. So this is the funeral directors could definitely do this. Um, going on calls, offering, I think it's about customer service, and, and in one way the hospice is the customer of the funeral provider. Okay. I, I think, well, I know you are aware that I am a former uh, hospice volunteer, and a story that I don't know if I've ever told any anybody about this publicly, I'm, I'm doing so now, uh, I was associated with a corporation, and the first acquisition uh, that was done in Illinois, I was the uh, uh, the funeral uh, director in charge, and this was around the same time as the Bill Moyers Initiative. I'm not sure, Loretta, if that was the, the time that brought us together working, because we worked together for so many years, and... Uh, uh, me with your uh, end of life coalition, but uh, I can say with all honesty, uh, I was curious. Uh, I saw an opportunity there. It was difficult for me to imagine how I, as a funeral director, could avoid the impression that I was just going out hunting for bodies. But uh, I think what happened, I'll tell you two things that happened that went a long way in, on my behalf was that uh, uh, all my staff, we were small, we were just starting out, but even the maintenance man was a certified hospice volunteer, okay? Uh, also, uh, we did, we contacted the uh, hospice, uh, in this case, it was the largest one in Illinois, and we developed a relationship, and they had a need for uh, more volunteers, especially to cater to the African-American community. So we went out and recruited volunteers. And actually, uh, we trained, We did a training one weekend at our facility, and it was about 35, 36 volunteers we bought online, which was the largest one-time enrollment in that hospice's uh, history. Well, I, I can't tell you what I can't tell you how surprised I was with what happened after that, because I would routinely attend banquets or you know gatherings, and at one in particular, you, we were still shy about being funeral directors and not giving the impression that we were hanging around trying to you know catch the death and dying uh, population that was. Uh, you know, and associated with that particular hospice. But one of the hospice uh, professionals uh, gave a speech at the dinner, and here we are, myself and another director, we were sitting in the rear of the room, kind of out the way, and they cited us. They, you know, they asked us to stand, and, and they gave a big thank you for... Uh, the work we had been doing, and, and I was frankly shocked because I stood up and I felt guilty, again, wondering how people would judge me. But this is a fact. Uh, in the ensuing months, uh, there was never a month that I had less than 50% of my calls uh, hospice-related. And also, uh, I think at its peak, it was not unusual to see 75, uh, you know, uh, three out of every four calls uh, being hospice-related. But we did successfully establish ourselves in the hospice community, 
And I really believe, uh, aside from one time I went to see my hospice patient, I was coming back from, I think, filing papers and driving a hearse. I pulled into the uh, nursing home parking lot and went inside, and I asked for the patient, and the lady behind me just screamed and almost fell out on the floor. The person I had asked about was her father, and she had seen me drive up in the hearse, and she thought her dad was you know, had passed. So, yeah. Uh So the lesson to me then was, you know, if I'm going to, you know, visit hospice patients that I, you know, uh, do so not in, in a wagon, uh, that people might, you know, associate with, here's a funeral director, uh, you know, coming around hunting for business because at the same time, this particular family, after the shock, uh, I sat down with the daughter and tried to calm her down and, Invariably, the conversation turned to, well, I hadn't thought about a funeral home. I don't have a funeral home. Uh, uh, Might as well, since you're here, I want to ask you about, you know, what services you provide. And I made it clear to her that I'm not doing this to hustle uh, funerals. I'm doing this out of my own uh, interest in better serving this market. But I gave her my card, and the staff saw that, and they filed a complaint uh, against me with the hospice provider saying that you got a funeral director over there trying to, to hustle funerals. So what, what, is, what am I saying in all this? It's, it's rewarding, but you really got to know how to work this in a way that makes your ethical approach upstanding in everyone's eyes, which is why I was trying to focus just how you, as a funeral director, would do this, you know, what things that we must be sensitive to. Number one, you definitely say, if I'm going to do a transfer, not just for hospice, maybe I ought to consider how I uh, Go to homes or and nursing homes, and I don't know about hospitals. Does the same thing apply? My appearance and the quality of the vehicle that I'm doing the transfer in. It does make a difference. Okay. Of course, it does. Yeah. Well, I know too many of us use uh, removal services, and we really don't put a lot. I, which is, again, something I can't understand because especially in the case of a house removal, if you're going into the family's home, that is your first contact and you really need to know your policies, maybe a price list. You, you need to have papers for them to sign, uh, if possible, uh, if they, you know, give them guidelines as to what will take place within the next few days. And I don't believe removal services necessarily focus on those aspects. Uh, my experience, and it's not just the one I described, is that they don't. And, and, and why wouldn't you have requirements, just like a job description? If you're going to do this work for me, I need you to wear a suit. I need you to bring... Uh, a, a, a shroud, uh, an attractive shroud. I mean, I've seen funeral directors with beautiful velvet covers that go over the body bag. Sure, sure. And it just, you know, it gives, I mean, somebody should, a family should see a loved one leave and feel that, oh my God, this, they're treating my, my mom or my dad or my husband or wife like a king or a queen would go out. Okay. 
Another question. Who is in your funeral home the person that you would select to lead a hospice outreach? I'm thinking that there's a problem if, uh, let's say, for example, your directors uh, are pretty much, it's, it's hard to plan. The, the work requirements and the, uh, uh, the dispatching uh, jobs vary from day to day. So to consistently work this, either there be a, either a dedicated hospice person or would it be something like a pre-need person? And if it's a pre-need person, is there a fear of a conflict of interest? Well, you know, your description of the volunteer situation that you're in is really tricky because, and, and death is, you know, death is, death is, uh, I mean, I would like to see, I would like to see death be a not-for-profit business, but uh, that's not going to happen. It's, um, you know, there there are a lot of ethical issues that can happen between someone who's providing a service that rewards them financially. And, uh, and I think that's about having, being ethical in your own head and heart and knowing what's right and what's, what's not right. And, um, I suppose in your situation, it would have been a good thing to talk to your your volunteer coordinator who would talk to her boss about your relationship to your work and the patient care. And if the patient asked for your business card or wanted to know, what, how, would, how did they want you to present yourself? Sure. To work it ahead instead of backwards. Okay, okay. That would have taken care of everything, to get clearance or not. Okay, and and just like the funeral providers would like hospice to recommend them, are they recommending hospice when they do pre-need? Are they is part of their pre-need conversation saying, you know, we have very good experience with hospice care. What do you know about it? Mm-hmm. And educate the family about hospice, and maybe there would be more people or fewer people dying within a week of of being admitted. Yes, yes. And, now, and that's a good way to approach a hospice, say, you know, I don't really know how you work, and I would like to talk to my clients about hospice care. Would you help educate, would you educate me and my staff? Can we arrange some sort of educational um, experience? You know, frankly, I can't understand why this hasn't been done already within the hospices uh, themselves, Uh why there hasn't been a, uh, let's say, a uh, information sheet that's distributed to funeral homes, uh, you know, uh, espousing the guidelines that they hold highest in esteem, and this is what we would like to see from our funeral service providers that uh, we work with. Uh, because hospices are, are right, they're squeezed. They don't make a lot of money. And, I mean, the reimbursement for hospice care is pretty slim. And and the shorter time a person stays in hospice, the less money they make because just the setup is very costly, getting equipment in, getting personnel in, all that. The person who dies in two days, is it's a money loser. So, um, so one reason is they're outreaching now to hospitals to get referrals. They're outreaching to uh, nursing homes to get referrals. And they're doing community education. And now there's a big push for advanced directives. So this is, you know, hospice has really only been around in the United States since 1974. And in 2000, 
uh, when the Bill Moyers thing went, I, I'm not sure if it was there were half as many hospices, but there were certainly a lot less than there are today. So this is, in many ways, still a growing and relatively new industry. <clears throat> you know, funeral directors go back to what World War, to the Civil War. The, the, yes, yes. When you started embalming, so um, that's that's part of this, and and I think because of the potential for uh, a, a dangerous fiduciary relationship that 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 you know, is, just hasn't happened, but I, I liken there is. There is a huge social movement in this country and around the world to change the way we're dying, and part of that is changing the way we memorialize people. And I liken it to uh, cigarette seat belts and condoms. Those were all social. There was social movement to get people to stop smoking. Started when they labeled in 1963, and it took years to get those labels on cigarettes. At that time, over 50% of adults in America smoked. It's 19% now. And seatbelts. It took years. We were the last developed country to require seatbelts in cars. And and how many lives and limbs have seatbelts saved? Mm-hmm. And condoms. You know until. Pretty much, I would think 2000 until the millennium, maybe maybe a little bit before, they were behind the pharmacist counter. And now they're in gas stations and drug stores because as a society, we saw this is a life-saving tool. And, this is a, and the same thing is happening with advanced care planning now, health care planning. This discussion about having a health care power of attorney documented so when you go into a hospital... You have someone who you've chosen and spoken to about how you want to be cared for at the end of your life mm-hmm. and living wills that make this determination. And this is something I think funeral directors need to be doing. They need to be a resource for this when, when they're talking to families. You know, it's a way for In fact, we need to lead by example. Yes. Funeral directors, it's important for us to, to, to increase our sensitivity that we as people who work with the dying, whether it's hospital, hospice, funeral, that we are preparing for our own deaths, that we're having these conversations with our families, that we're doing our own advanced directives. I mean, how can we really comfortably talk to somebody else about their dying if we're not comfortable talking about our own? Well, you know, we've gone an hour already, and boy, did you just touch on a can of worms, because, uh, you know, uh, if we, to the extent we are a death-denying industry, then we, the staffs who make up this industry, uh, imp- that by implication, uh, artists at the uh, skill of, you know, facilitating denial of death. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I learned as a hospice volunteer, and there were some situations that are just, you know, I had, I found out I had a weak stomach to attend to the dying, the odors, the difficulty, the, the whole air of grief. I don't believe funeral directors have a lot of information, uh, a lot of experience in, in that, um, arena. But I also want to say that until you go through it, uh, how you attend to the dying or how you attend to the families who've had a a loss, you cannot be as effective until you have actually entered that arena and better understood what goes on. 
it's sacred ground. It is. It really when is. When you are with the family at death, that is sacred ground. Yes. It, the, 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 the act of dying is a transition that transforms not just the person who's died, left their body, but all the people participating at the end of their lives. Yes. Loretta, as powerful as birth. Uh, I agree. Uh, I'm. There's a wonderful film. It's Japanese with subtitles. You might even know about it. It's called Cherry Blossoms. Uh, is that the one where the guy's a musician? Oh, wait. Cherry Blossoms is, is a German film. There's a film. I'm going to find out the name of it because... I'm 65, and my memory's not as sharp all the time about there, names. I've, I've seen the one, and it's talked about so much in our industry about the uh, guy who is a musician, and he can't find work, and he has a family to support, and he takes the job of working for a funeral director. That's not it? Um. Yes, is and that it? They are the, they, oh, they, he can't he can't find a job in his field, and he take he takes a job working for departures. It. It's called departures. That's it. Yeah, that's it. And that's, that's it. That's Correct. the one where he cleans the body and dresses, <sighs> and for the according to the Japanese custom, and yes. what he discovers is this: this was all the time uh, his life calling. <laughs> Yes. yes, Ray, we need to change the rituals around death and after death. And the message, we're getting this message, people don't want to have funerals with bodies and caskets, the bodies embalmed the way we did for almost a century. We want different services. We want different rites. Families want to witness cremation. They want rituals. And who better to create new rituals for after death in the funeral industry? Who does this? The specialists. Beautiful spiritual rituals where, where people give things to each other, you know, where, where butterflies are released at an event, where, um, where I mean, something that, that means something to a person is, is brought to the funeral parlor, a musician surround the casket with or or, or have have uh, musical instruments at the the event or the music the person liked or mm-hmm. the food the person liked yes. you know my mother was famous for fried chicken she didn't get to have the kind of funeral where we'd have fried chicken but that kind of thing and mm-hmm. and, and i think if if there were a group of funeral directors who sat down and gave themselves some new goals you could come up with some pretty creative action. Well, it, as it stands right now, I sincerely believe that that is the mission of the NFDA uh, in partnership with uh, the National uh, Palliative Care and Hospice uh, Organization. Uh, they, uh, and I believe I've got another quote from them, but I'm just going to try and just skim over this uh, real quickly. But it does... They do argue that funeral directors have become an integral part of hospice care. No argument from you in that end. Correct, they are. Okay, when you consider the philosophy of hospice and funeral service, it is clear why funeral service is a natural extension of hospice care. So what they're saying is this is the relationship that is going 
unattended or underserved simply because of uh, the inability, as you say, of the hospice to maybe devote time, that puts uh, becomes more incumbent upon our professionals to do the reaching out. Correct. Okay, with funeral planning and more open discussion of at-deaf needs encouraged by hospice, funeral directors and hospice caregivers are working closely in order to meet the total needs of the family. In other words, in order to meet the total needs of the family, there has to come uh, some kind of a collaboration, I take it. Oh, why not? Mm-hmm. It just makes sense. It's like a grocery store having a relationship with farmers. Okay. Or um, a car dealer having a relationship with their parts vendors. Okay. So it goes on. It makes, I'm going to keep going here, with a greater understanding of each other's care and areas of expertise and resources, each discipline may work together to plan a course which makes for a more natural transition of care at the time of death uh, for those who have been caring for the... Uh, oh, and, and, and in caring for the survivors. That's the aftercare component, which we have, uh, I think, grounds, further grounds to advance in that area as well. Did I make myself clear? Oh, yes. In fact, isn't that... The, the mission of both hospice and, you, you read it so well, uh, the mission of hospice and the funeral profession is, is to create more peace and comfort at the final transition of a person's life for them and their families. Okay. Well, you know, the same mission. Same mission. Yeah. Well, it's, it's argued that the hospice workers are familiar with the problems inherent in establishing effective working relationships amongst different professional disciplines. We didn't talk about the interdisciplinary teams, but I guess that's what uh, this statement is referring to. You know the problems of bringing people from diverse backgrounds together to uh, surround themselves in the direction of a specific mission. Is, is, is that correct? Yes. So the only thing is that manpower that hospices uh, uh, lack in terms of reaching out, then it should be, this should fall on the shoulders of funeral homes. Is, would that be fair to say? Um, I certainly think a lot of the responsibility falls on the shoulders of funeral homes to do that. Okay. I mean, this is part of, again, I think you have to look at mission statements and vision. Okay. What, what, uh, and I'll be honest with you, I'll tell you, I had to really tussle with this idea of getting involved in hospice simply because of my identity as a funeral director. And I went in blind, and there was a lot that I, I learned. But what if my, uh, my peers in the business, you know, look at it as, uh, and feel some guilt, some residual guilt that I'm, I'm just going after, you know where this is going to end. I'm just trying to get, I'm trying to do something to address my declining call volume. Um, well, that, 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 then you're not going to do very good service. That's all there is to it. And, and, and that, if, if that's the attitude, it does show. We know that, you know, (laughs) you get a salesperson who's only selling a product because they want to make the commission. Um, 
but I'm thinking if I were a hospice director and a funeral a funeral provider called me and called me and said, you know, that I'm doing a lot of advanced planning with my clients and and I've had a personal experience with hospice or I've, I keep hearing of hospice and I would like to be able to advise my clients about hospice. Can you recommend a good book I can read? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, and then you send a follow-up that thank you for this. I appreciate this. And now I've read the book. I have some questions. Can I meet with you? Can, can you help me do my pre-planning better? That's a clean relationship. Okay. Because you've, you have the person, you have, you have, clearly expressed uh, an interest in hospice service, you're willing to read a book and you have questions about it. You know, that tells me you're not just trying to make some money. Okay, I got you there. And, you know, I I, uh, I, I saw another statement earlier and I, I thought about this right away and I wanted to know if you could verify this. Is it true that uh, the initial hospice training, uh, the staff people do or are required to take a tour of a funeral home? Um, that did not happen when I was trained. I, that did happen when I was getting my gerontology degree. It was part one of one of the um, uh, field trips we took was to a funeral parlor. Had okay. a lovely experience, too, by the way. It was just lovely, okay. the, the direct family-owned. Um, so there may be hospices that do. They, a volunteer is a hospice volunteer is required to take 16 hours of training. Um, other staff, I can't say if, but my nurse friends have never talked about that or the oh. aid, so oh. I don't think so. Okay, so then it is reasonable, uh, a, a reasonable strategy might be, for the funeral home to contact a hospice organization, maybe several in this case, but at the, and once he or she has developed some understanding of all that's involved, uh, begin initial preparation to do a, a, what I would call a bona fide outreach. But that also would include inviting, uh, having a day uh, when the various hospice organizations will visit, maybe walk through the place, sit down and, and, and have a dinner, uh, sit down over a meal. That's assuming the facility uh, can accommodate uh, such a uh, practice. And, and then uh, have, you know, more conversation. We're at the early start of this, I would take it, because uh, there's so much more in the way we could do this better. Yeah, I, you know, to find out, have a, have a collaboration. I don't know if you even need to serve a meal, but certainly to, because everybody's busy. But it, to, to say, let's, let's create a relationship here where we serve our community better. If that's the mission, that's beautiful, and it requires a collaboration. We want to serve our community better. We, we don't want families to suddenly face death when somebody has been sick for three years. Um, and, and we we want people to feel they've had a good service after death, like a good a good funeral memorial service that they want, not that we want. I, I told you I worked in the merchandise mart for thirty years. I retired when I was fifty. I was in sales, and the reason I got to retire, was able to retire early, is because I gave great customer service. My buyers loved me. I followed up. I did I did a lot of work for them. And that's what needs to happen here. 
Very the good. Funeral director, it sets. It's all about customer service and hospices your customer as much as your, as you, as as the people who come into your door wanting to be sent off in your funeral home. Okay. Well, uh, Loretta, I think uh, it's we've been on the. F- on this interview for an Ooh. hour and 15 minutes. Can you believe that? <laughs> yeah, Ray. Well, whenever you and I get together, we do <laughs> to talk a lot about this. But I would leave by saying, I, funeral directors, do your own advanced directives. Use that as part of your uh, conversation when you do pre-need with families. And uh, learn more about hospice. And, and you know, I think part of being... Uh, good at what we do is being good listeners. Okay, so that's 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 how we'll we'll close. Learn okay. about hospice. Contact the hospice organization. Express your desire to uh, become more informed about all the things that are involved. And as this progresses, at the same time, you think about how you would structure an outreach within your facility. What changes would be needed? Who would do that? Uh, who would handle the major responsibilities and, and get it rolling? And I'm sure the NFDA, NFDA this year, uh, the National Funeral Directors Association, will probably be passing out uh, uh, flyers or brochures as part of a campaign in partnership with the Hospice and Palliative Care Organization. Yes, instead of running a relay race where the patient is the baton that hospice hands over to the funeral directors, get on a tandem bike and make the journey together. Boy, that's a perfect way to end it. I, th- I think that's excellent. Uh, Loretta, I have to say Thanks, goodbye. Ray. <laughs> I, I hope this was beneficial. I've, certain, I've learned some things today, too. Thank you very much, and I really appreciate this opportunity to talk about something that is really important to me and that we as a society need to be talking about more and earlier in our lives. Yes, yes. And I'm going to invite our listeners to direct uh, specific questions if they so choose uh, to our uh, attention. And we will in turn uh, have you back. I won't hold you for over an hour, but I'll give you the opportunity to address uh, any questions our uh, fellow practitioners might want to put to you. Thank you very much, Ray. Thanks, Loretta. It's been great.